one of the things that we always do is we talk about our purpose, plan, and process. Now, this is so vital because as a church, we have to know why we exist. What is our purpose? What is our plan? What's our process? Uh, if you talk to, and I don't mean this bad, but if you talk to people in other churches, places around all over, and you say, what's y'all's purpose? Uh, sometimes they don't know at all. Sometimes they've never been able to articulate it. Sometimes they say, I think it's to lead people to Christ or something like that. We, we just wanted to make sure that we as a church know what our purpose is and then how do we plan to carry out that purpose and then what's the process that we use. So we start with our purpose, plan, and process and we talk about the grow groups. And if you notice, we call them grow groups because G-R-O-W, if you see G-R-O-W, grow in relationships, obey the word. So the whole purpose of grow groups is the relationships we have when we get into smaller groups and then to obey the word is the part of the aspect of the teaching of the grow groups where we teach the Bible so we can make applications. So that's why we call them grow groups so we can grow in our relationships, G-R, and then obey the word, O-W, so grow. That's why we call them grow groups. We're talking about our purpose. Why do we as a church exist? It, it, and, you know, I think if you've been here any length of time, I mean, you know, we're going on over five years as a church now. That's a long time. It just seems like about a year or two. But we've been in the building over, over what, over two years now. And so, just amazing. So, why do we exist? And so, the bottom line, I've, I've turned in the Bible to Matthew 28. So I just want to remind you, why do we exist? We exist really because what we call the Great Commission. Jesus came up and spoke, saying, this is with the guys. He's at there on, at a mountain somewhere in Galilee. It doesn't tell us Jesus came up and spoke, saying, and he said, there, he said to them, uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He said, All authority has been given me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and do what? Make disciples. See, the Great Commission is actually make disciples as you are going, as you are baptizing, as you are teaching. That's how it actually fits in the Greek. So when you look at the Great Commission, the Great Commission, there's only one command, and that is to make disciples. Now, we just spend a, a number of weeks at least the last two to three to four lessons of our growing in of the relationships in Christ about making disciples, about having someone to disciple us and then we disciple others. So their goal, our whole purpose of a church, not only for each of you individually is to make disciples, but then our church as a whole. If somebody came to you and said, why does this church exist? What are we here for? It's to make disciples. Now, making disciples involves two things. It involves evangelism and training. Evangelism, which is, of course, leading people to Christ and training. So evangelism is where we, as we go into this community, as we go to where we work, where we play, the family, relationships, neighborhoods, all of those things, we go to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. We ought to be looking for the opportunities. We talked about sharing our faith. In our grow group, one week, we asked, raised the questions, why is it? We don't share our faith. And we talked about fear and we talked about other kinds of things. But we're to go into our community to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ in our world. That's evangelism. And then there's the training aspect. And that is as people come to know Christ and we come together in a church or in a, ser- in a service, uh, gather together, whatever it is, we, we want to train believers. We're teaching believers to observe, literally, to obey his commands. Jesus said, teaching them to observe all which I have commanded you. So our goal is to teach the Word of God. So making disciples is evangelism and training, leading people to Christ, training them, equipping them. Now, we can sit in this room for years and know that and be able to rattle it off and never once share our faith and never once disciple the soul. 
So it's really easy to know but not to do. And the Bible says be doers of the word and not just hearers only. So be careful that we say, I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it, but are we actually doing it? And so this is, this is the thing. So bottom line here, we take what we've been taught and teach others. That's the discipleship end of it. And so the bottom line is to make disciples, we must be disciples. So to make disciples, we must go into this community, lead people to Christ, train them and equip them. So the idea now of making disciples, we come to the plan. How are we going to accomplish our purpose? How do we carry this about? And it goes to this. It's based on Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. This is one of the key passages in in our in, in our church, Ephesians 4.11 says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints to do the work of the ministry, building up the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of faith to the knowledge of the Son of God. I mean, we can go, that's the passage. Well, here's the deal. He says, we're to equip believers. This is how we do this thing. We're equipping each other so that we can do the ministry so the body of Christ can be built up. And we've said this many, many times. The believers do the ministry. Now, my role, I'm, I'm a believer, so I do ministry as well. But the church isn't JB serving and all us watching. The church is that we equip each other so we can all do the ministry. And so he says to equip believers to know the Word of God and the gospel, to apply the Word to our lives, and to teach other people. That's what we find. We're equipping each other in this room. And, and the church as a whole, that we know the Bible, we know the gospel, we know the message, we know the scriptures, and then we apply that in our lives as we live it out, and then we pass it on to others. So equip the saints to, do the, to, to uh, know, apply it, so that we can do the ministry. And what is the ministry? What's the ministry? Making disciples. That's it. If you ask, what is your role in life? What is your purpose that God has allowed you to be on this earth is to make disciples. You're going to be equipped so you can do the ministry. What's the purpose that God says have a local body that meets together on a regular basis? It's to make disciples. So we're to equip the saints to do the ministry, and the bottom line is to build up the body. Now, in the passage of Ephesians 4, it's always talking about spiritual growth till we come to maturity, to the measure of a mature man, that we're no longer children going back and forth by every wind of doctrine, but speaking the truth in love, we grow up into Christ, and so we grow up. That's, that passage is talking about spiritual growth. But there is a truth that when we are growing spiritually, when we lead people to Christ, when we train them and equip them, when we grow spiritually, we're going to most likely grow numerically because you're going to be reaching out, leading people to Christ, bringing them into the body, training them, equipping them to reap produce themselves. So that's what we're supposed to do. And if our church isn't growing, we could say it's not growing. You know why? And some people say it's not growing because we're not attracting people. Look, it's not attracting people. That's the philosophy of the world is you've got to figure out some way to get them to come here. No, you're to go out where they are, lead them to Christ, bring them in and train them. We're not trying to attract a bunch of people. We're trying to train people who God brings here as we lead them to Christ and bring them. Now, there's nothing wrong with, you know, having good stuff and, and everything we do, we do it the best we can and we make people, you know, make known what we do. So we're not running people off, but the bottom line is if our church isn't growing, because see what happens is about 98% of all church growth is just people from moving from one church to another. It's not pe people coming to know Christ. It's just people going, I used to be at that church, now I go to this church. Well, I used to be at this church, now I go to this church. 
You know the famous story about the guy who was on the island and he had been shipwrecked there for years and, and they, they rescued him and they got and they found him. And they said, he said, let me show you where I've lived. And so he took him to a house and then he said, this is where I've lived for all these years. And they said, what's that over there? He said, this is my church. This, this is where I go to church. They said, what's that other building? He said, well, that's where I used to go to church. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's what happened. So we don't want to be that. We want to, we want to be bringing people in, right? So build up the body spiritually and numerically. So we have a process. We call it gathered and scattered. We gather for worship and training. We scatter for evangelism and service. So the gather and scatter, we gather together like this morning. Why have we come together? We've come together to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we sing songs, that's why we pray, that's why we study the Bible. So, but we've also come together to be trained, that we take the truth from the Bible and we say, let's make application in our lives so that we can train it and then, and then we can touch other lives. So we gather together for worship and training, but we, then we scatter for evangelism and service. So that's what we do. We, we move, when we gather, we gather big groups to what? Small groups. It, you know, you can only do so much in a big group. On a Sunday morning, 400, 450 people, you know, what, that's just a big group. But you get in a group of 20, you get in a group of 30, you get in a group of 10 or 15, then you begin to be able to interact and you grow in your relationship and you grow in the truths of the Word and you help build each other up. So the bottom line is big groups to small groups. Now think about this. There's probably, I don't even know how many is in here, maybe 200. Okay, but on a Sunday morning we have 400 and something. Where are the other 200? Because you are all about to break and to go into what? Small groups. And that is vital for the growth of the body and the believers. So we go big groups to small groups, and then we scatter. We go into this, this community, evangelizing, serving, touching lives. That's why each grow group, every semester, each grow group is supposed to have a community prog- uh, project. You remember? A community project in which that individual grow group seeks to do something in this community for the cause of Jesus Christ. And if you ask yourself, whoa, we haven't done one. Why haven't you done one? You know, what are we supposed to do? Are we going to get blankets for people? Are we going to do this? Are we going to uh, do something else? Are we going to feed the college kids? Are we, what are we going to do? That's what we're supposed to be doing. And so here's the purpose. Make disciples, right? What is making disciples? Evangelism and training. What's the plan? Equip the believers to do the ministry so the body can be built up. And then the process is we gather for worship and training. We scatter for evangelism and service. Okay, that's, I think that's it. Let me press the button. I think it goes away. Okay, there it is. All right, now, with that in mind, let's think about it. What do we want to do? We want to scatter out, lead people to Christ, bring them back in, gather together, big groups to small groups, training and equipping those who know Christ so that we can reproduce ourselves and we can keep going out and bringing them in and the body grows not only spiritually, but the body grows numerically. So ask yourself, are you making disciples? Are you fulfilling the purpose that God has put you on this earth? Are we as a church fulfilling the purpose that God has put us on this earth? So we want to do that. Okay, now... Bible questions. Uh, let me look at the clock. Okay, we've got a few minutes. And I, I, got, I received some, so let me just give them to you. I'm going to go over it to you and answer it as we got it. A first person wrote me a question, and they said, basically, what's the difference between the kingdom and heaven? 
Because even the Bible says the kingdom of heaven and heaven, what's the difference? When we start talking about the kingdom, almost every time the kingdom is referring to the millennial kingdom, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. When we talk about heaven, we talk about heavenly places. And if you look in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, Paul says there's three heavens. He said he was caught up in the third heaven. We think the first heaven is the atmosphere, the second heaven is the abode of the angels, and the third heaven is where God is. So there's a difference between a millennial kingdom on this earth and the heavens. As I look now, because it's a kind of a long question or long different things, uh, it basically goes and says, what about the thief on the cross when he was with Jesus? He said, don't forget me when you come in your kingdom. Okay, that's talking about the millennial kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So paradise and the kingdom are two different things. Paradise was the place of the dead. Paradise was in the heart of the earth. It is now in the heavenly places. So to be absent from the body, you are where? Present with the Lord, where's the Lord? Seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father. So paradise, so paradise is basically in the heavenlies now, but the that the kingdom, there'll be a thousand-year reign of the kingdom on the earth, and then there'll be an eternal kingdom on a new heavens and a new earth. She went ahead and, uh, and asked some further questions and said, in Luke 17, 20, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. Actually, it says in the Greek, the kingdom of God, and the New American Standard says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. What does that mean? When Jesus was on the earth and John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means change your mind. See the fact that the king is here. John the Baptist was saying, the king is here, the Messiah is here. When Jesus was going, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is on the earth. He wanted the nation of Israel to recognize him as the Messiah and the Savior and the king. Okay, that was the plan. So when they, they, they were asking him something and the religious leaders were doing something, he said, the kingdom is in your midst. He was saying, I'm the king. And the kingdom's here right now because I'm here. It's not going to stay here because you're rejecting me. That's what's fixing to happen. Then she goes on and raises another question that says, when Jesus later said, my kingdom's not here. When he was arrested in John 18, he's talking to Pilate. And he says something like, and he says, my kingdom's not here. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. And one day the kingdom will be on the earth. But it's not on this earth now. That's what he's saying. And then last but not least, um, well, she did raise the question about uh, the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. One of the gospels uses kingdom of God. Others use kingdom of heaven. Most, be some, most believe there's no difference. However, it seems to indicate that the kingdom of God is just the rule of God in everything, and the kingdom of heaven refers to the time on the earth. When the, in the prayer Jesus prayed, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's talking about the earthly kingdom to come. So there it seems to be a difference between kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, but if you don't make a distinction, that's not the biggest deal in the world. Last but not least, and it's really the hardest part of all, in Matthew 11, he said that until John the Baptist, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and they take it by force. And nobody exactly knows what he means by that. However, best we can tell is that he's dealing with the Pharisees, and he's saying the Pharisees are trying to force things into the kingdom by the law and by their, their righteousness. And he says the kingdom suffers violence because the only way to get to the kingdom, how? Is to come as a... How do you enter the kingdom? You must come as a... As a child, exactly, by faith alone in the Messiah alone. So that's some questions about the kingdom. I hope that helped a little bit. Um, have another question, and this is a little bit more involved as well. The question dealt with discipline and sin, okay? And so what you understand, remember, there's a passage in Hebrews that says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and 
scourges every child he receives. So there's a, it says chasten and scourge. What we realize is the word chasten actually means to discipline, and the word discipline doesn't mean necessarily that you did something wrong. If, uh, if I was training you to run a marathon, I might say, okay, Dave, you're going to go out and run six miles. Next week, you're going to run nine miles. You'd say, that's tough. That's discipline. That's not, that's not punishment. That's training you. Sometimes God allows things to come in our lives to train us. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials because the testing of your faith works patience. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. So here's the bottom line is this. When we sin, and this is when I, I talk to the person so I, I know what they were asking. When we sin, what does God do? Does he, is that discipline? Is it uh, is it scourging, which the word scourging means take the hide off. So when we sin, does he punish us? How does it work? Well, there's, a, there's an aspect that when you sin, the consequences of sin sometimes is what God allows to happen. He says it in Romans chapter 1, that he allows us to make decisions and then reap the consequences. If you're drunk and you get drunk and you have a car wreck and tear up your car, there are consequences for getting drunk. You've got your car torn up. If you take a bunch of drugs and mess your whole system up and your body up, there are consequences. So the real question is, so when you sin, are the consequences of sin just the natural consequences of any sin or does God intervene? I think God intervenes because it says he chastens and scourges. So sometimes I think God just allows the natural consequences of your sin to affect you, but there are also times that he deals with us. We looked at life of King David. King David did two bad things. We had uh, sexual relations with Bathsheba, and he killed her husband Uriah. And when he didn't deal with his sin, God Basically, God, and David writes in Psalm 51 that your hand was heavy upon me, my bones hurt, I couldn't sleep, and all. That was all consequences of sin. And most of us in this room know that when you do things that are wrong, there are consequences, sometimes not only the natural consequence from sin, but also the, uh, the, the, that God deals with it. Um, another question, part of this was, could you sin and die? The answer is yes. If you look in 1 John chapter 5, he says there is a sin, and when he says a sin, he doesn't mean a particular sin, but he's saying there's sin that leads to death. If you do some things long enough, you may die. Either you may die from the consequences of that sin, or he may bring you home. If you remember in Acts, at the very beginning, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit in front of everybody, and they died immediately. So uh, there are times that people continue in a state of sin that possibly might cause them their death. Okay, so, that, so that's the questions there about this one. So here's what you do. If you sin, what are you supposed to do? Confess it. He, if, you, if, we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So we back into fellowship and we're cleansed, and that's what we're supposed to do. It's just because you confess your sin does not mean there may not be consequences. If you are drunk and tear your car up and you say, oh, I'm so sorry I did that, Lord, that doesn't mean your car's fixed, right? I mean, so sometimes there are consequences that even... Now, listen, you always want to be in fellowship when the consequences come, if they come that way. So just wanted to throw that out. I hope that helps. So um, when you sin, confess it. One other statement. Sometimes bad things happen to people. And you should not immediately say, I wonder what they did wrong. 
There is not necessarily a correlation. Sometimes God allows things to come into our lives to train us, to help us grow. He takes people, and almost every one of us have had sorrow in our lives. And just because we had sorrow in our lives did not mean we sinned and did something wrong to cause and bring that in there. So we just have to be careful about that one. Okay, one other. Uh, let me throw another one out. Uh, um, a person came to me this morning and just said this. Uh, in Daniel, there's this part about 45 days. Let me, let me explain something to you. In Daniel, at the very end of the book, and we will get to it eventually, but in Daniel chapter 12, right at the end, he says something like this. In chapter 12, verse 7, he says, I, I saw this man, and he was high above the waters, and he's, Daniel's asking him, how long is this tribulation thing going to last? And he says it will be a time, times, and half a time. How long is that? Three and a half years. But then he goes down in verse 11 of Daniel chapter 12 and says, From that time the regular sacrifice is abolished. That's when the Antichrist puts his idol up. And the abomination of desolation, there'll be 1,290 days. That's more than three and a half years. In fact, that's three and a half years and 30 days. So one of the questions to me is, what is that? The answer is, nobody knows. But here's what, here's what we say. Okay, what could it possibly be? Many believe that that's at the very end of the tribulation. Jesus Christ comes back. If you remember from Matthew 24, 25, he judges sheep and the goats. He's going to set up the kingdom. Many believe that 30-day time period is when he's setting up the kingdom and judging. Nobody knows. Now, we're not through. Because then it says, How blessed is the one who keeps waiting and obtains to the 1335 another 45 days. He doesn't explain what that is. Nobody knows what that is. Some say that's him once again setting up the kingdom, appointing people to places of responsibility. That's a possibility. So other people believe that that's when there is the judgment seat of Christ when the believers are rewarded before they go into the kingdom. And some say that's also when, in Daniel 12, 2, when the Old Testament saints are raised and the church comes together, and many believe that that 45-day time period is, is the rewarding stand. I don't know. I've, I've kind of always thought that the rewarding stand is either while the tribulation is going on or the moment you die, you stand before your Savior and are rewarded. But it's a possibility. So anyway, the questions are, we don't really know what the 1290 is and the 1335. We can just sort of guess on those. Okay. Um, there was a donkey that spoke during Balaam's time. And then there's the serpent are there any other places in the scripture in which an animal talks? Well, I looked everywhere. I can't find anything. There's not another place. The only thing that's remote is Revelation 13, chapter 1, when it says there was this beast that came up out of the sea, and the beast spoke. The beast is the Antichrist. So, it, so it's symbolic there that this beast coming out of the sea is actually a person. So it's not like an animal speaking. So the best that we can tell. I've got... Two more questions, and then we, well, we're past time, but we're going to go a little longer. Okay, here's, here's, you want to go longer? Uh, okay, all right. Okay, Here, this question is, is kind of a, it, it's basically saying, what's the difference between belief and faith, and if, when you believe, how do you know if your faith is strong enough or something like that? Well, the bottom line, the word belief and faith in the Scripture is exactly the same word as the Greek word pistuo, which is a verb, which means I believe, or the Greek word pistis, which actually means faith. 
So when we say, do you believe something? Do you trust something? That's exactly the same word. So when we believe, let's just put it this way. Let's say you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're trusting in him to give you eternal life. The question might be, well, how do I know if my faith is strong enough or something like that? Well, the truth is that it's not amount of faith ever. It's not the amount of faith that we have when we believe. It's the object of our faith. I believe in Jesus Christ to give me eternal life. It's not how much faith I have in Christ, because look at it this way. What if I said, I believe Buddha will save me, and I'm taking all the faith I can muster up and put it in Buddha? Am I saved? No, because Buddha's not a savior. So it's not the amount of faith that we have that saves us. It's the object of our faith. That's why Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, little bitty, you can move a mountain. So when we think about faith, it's always, first of all, faith always has an object. It's what we are trusting. And so when we talk about salvation, what the, the, the whole salvation message, there's the message and a response. The message is that Jesus died and rose again. The response is to what? To believe in him for eternal life. That's why the great verses, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, us, gave his son, gave him to do what? Die and rise again. That whosoever what? Believes in him will never perish but have what? Eternal life. So we trust in him for eternal life. I have one more question, and, and we'll just look at the clock after that. But the last question that somebody gave me is, does man have free will? Okay, now, let's think about this. In the sovereignty of God, we have a God that is so great that nothing's outside the sovereign will of God. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians chapter 1. That's why we're seeing he's raising up kings and sitting down kings and everything else. At the same time, does man have free will to make choices and decisions? What's the answer? Yes. Did you decide to come here today? Yes. You could have decided not to come here today. I'd have been mad, but you could have decided that, right? Okay? So, and then I have the free will to be mad or not be mad. Okay, and so the bottom line is we make choices, but here's what's so amazing. Was it in God's sovereign plan that you would be here today? Okay, but you chose to be here, right? So what we have is a God who is so great that he can plan all the end from the beginning and work everything perfectly at the same time, you have decision-making capacity and choices, and it fits in his plan. That's why Romans says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both for the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You, you, you cannot put this together. And that's why historically people have always said, okay, man doesn't have free will, man has free And they get all confused because what they're trying to do is put together two truths called an antinomy, two truths that are true, but it, it seems to be opposite how we think. How can God be completely sovereign and we have free will? They both fit together. How can Jesus be three in one? I mean, how can God be three in one? How can Jesus be God and man at the same time? Not 50-50, 100, 100. It doesn't add up. Okay. Uh, we're, what are we supposed to do, Brian? Are we supposed to ask you more questions or go to our grow groups? What do you want to do? Huh? Take some more questions? You, Paul, you got one? Okay, don't make it hard now. Okay. Did Jesus Christ have long hair? Did Jesus Christ have long hair? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, let, 
I have never seen a picture of him, uh, so I don't know. At that time, culturally, most men's hair was a little a longer than than our hair as a whole. That the way they wore their hair. You're gonna, there's some pictures. You're gonna see some pictures this morning of Alexander the Great. How they and his hair is just it's it's more like like uh, Ian Ian like Ian's hair. Okay, that's not that's not long hair. But that basically is the hair of Alexander the Great, that part of the world at that time. And some, like today, there are people with longer hair, there are people with shorter hair. So nobody really knows. Okay, is there a reason you have just to... Right, that's in 1 Corinthians. There's a passage that says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Well, the question really is, what does that mean? Because how do you decide what's long and what's... Not long. In the flow of that passage, he's talking about head coverings for women. And the bottom line, I think he's saying is, you should be able to tell the difference between a man and a woman. So he didn't say, you, men have to have this hair. Because, you know, if you, if you look throughout history, men, some of them have longer hair, some of them have shorter hair. So I don't think... And, and then we get to the New Testament, Jesus never made any statements about anything like that. He basically just said, whoever you are, come on in. You know, right? Sort of has long hair. Yeah, he probably he was he looked like a normal Jewish person in the first century, so his hair was probably like Ian's about that. Yeah, let me bring that out. That's a great point, Bonita. Yeah, when when you exactly you see Jesus drawn or in the movies of some guy like this. My kingdom is not of this world. And he's like he's some mystic, you know. Jesus was a guy that, that he was a carpenter. He was t- Listen, when he went in that temple, turned those tables over and ran those people out, what do you think they did about it? They did nothing about it. That's what they did. So, yeah. Now, you had a question, didn't you, Bonita? Yeah, I want to know how dinosaurs, you know, we find dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Dinosaurs fit in perfectly. In fact, dinosaurs are in the Bible. If you turn to Job, chapter 40, 41, and 42, he describes actually dinosaurs. The best we can understand is that dinosaurs were there. And, of course, there was the, the, before the flood, there was a canopy above and everything. And then at the flood, the canopy fell. Water came up out of the ground. Noah got animals, every animal that he could put, including dinosaurs. After they came off the ark, the, the temperature, everything changed. If you notice, before the flood... Men lived 800, 900 years after the flood. The first generation lived 300 years. After that, they went down to 150 and, and less. So I, we think the cloud cover and the sun and everything made a difference. Uh, it seemed that many of these animals died, and many of them died in the what we call the Ice Age type thing. But at the time of Job, who lived at the same time of Abraham, Job is describing two different animals. One's called a behemoth uh, and and. It's, the only thing it could be is a dinosaur. So I think dinosaurs existed. I mean, where do you get the legend of dragons? Where does that come from? A dragon is a dinosaur is what it is. And thank you so much for that. That's exactly right. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> so the best we could say is dinosaurs, uh, you know, there's dinosaurs everywhere. And, and in, but by the all that you can find about dinosaurs, you can see that there had to be a catastrophe on the earth, which was the flood, and that had a part in it as well. So there were dinosaurs. They li- I think that dinosaurs existed even at the time of Abraham. Best we can tell is they probably died out after that. Well, what we, what we actually find is that cavemen 
are no different than we are. They just maybe look a little bit different, but they still did things that we do. They still cooked. They had tools. They did all kind of things. The things that they say this missing link, there aren't any missing links. The thing that they call Lucy, I remember studying Lucy. Lucy is supposed to be this miss, missing link. They found out she was a monkey. And what they've actually found is anything that they thought was missing links end up being either people or monkeys, but no missing link. And there's never been a missing link. There's, let's be honest with you. And let me just say this. If mankind evolved from some kind of monkey and evolved up and then became people, there wouldn't be one missing link. There'd be millions of, of links. It'd be everywhere. So it, it, you know, I did a whole study on creation evolution. If you want to, it's on the website. Thank you again. And it's on the website, and it, it's a pretty long study, but we go over the creation stuff, and we go over evolution, and we go over all of those built down man and, and all of the stuff that people have used for years and years and years and years. And, and by the way, let me just say this about people want to say that, but the earth is millions and millions and millions of years old. No, it's not. I think it's 10 to 20,000 years old, maybe, maybe a little older. But here's the deal. There's built-in age in the world. Think about it. When God created the heavens and the earth and he made the mountains and all that, how long did it take him to make that mountain? Seconds. How, long did, how old did that mountain look? When he made the trees and he made a big old giant tree, right? He, it didn't say, I put seeds down and I let them grow up. He made the trees, okay? When you saw that tree, if we were standing there, we'd say, what? That's a 100-year-old tree. No, it's about a second old. When he made Adam, Okay? How old did Adam look? Let's just say 30. How long had he been created? A second? There's built-in age in the universe. There's a book called Acts and Facts. There's a, um, a group called Acts and Facts, and they deal with all the scientific things dealing with creation and evolution. They're all creationists. Uh, and it's just amazing. What do people want to do, and I know we're running way over time, but what people want to do is they want to, Christians want to try to take science and merge it with the Bible. Sometimes they're called progressive creationists, but they're actually theistic evolutionists, and they want to say that the world, that God kind of started it, and he stood back, and he let it evolve up, and every now and then, he stepped in there. That's called progressive creationism or theistic evolution. It sounds really good, but guess what? It doesn't fit the Bible. The Bible says in six days, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them, and I go by the Bible and I don't go by... Because what we do is you continually find that the things in the Bible, every time they find something, they go, gosh, that matches the Bible. So does that help any... Did anybody... Uh, what did, yeah. did the cavemen look like Ian? No, 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 no. Yeah. Ian's handsome. Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay, you get another one, Paul? Oh, okay, all right. Okay, that's Genesis chapter 6. He said in Genesis chapter 6, it says something like, the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them to be wives. It's a real hard passage because right after that, mankind is so evil that God decides to bring the flood. Okay? So who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? One view is the sons of God are kings and the daughters of men are just regular people. That doesn't fit anything. The only view that actually fits is you have to go to the book of Jude and you have to go to Second Peter and what you find in, and the book of Job that sons of God in the Old Testament are angels. That's their title, sons of God. And the best that we can understand is that before the flood, some angels, this is going to sound weird, so I'm just telling you, some angels came and had sexual relations 
with people because the passage goes on to say that their offspring were mighty men of valor. That's where we get people like Ajax and Hercules and all those legends of these mighty strong people and, and their descendants called the Anax descendants. That's where people like uh, Goliath, who was nine feet, nine inches tall. Where do these people come from? Well, in the sense of descendants in that sense. But uh, so the best we can tell from Jude and Second Peter, there are some angels who are held in the heart of the earth because of their sin until a coming judgment for them. And it says they're held because they did not keep their first estate but basically goes and mess with men. So the only thing we can tell is the best that it looks like is the sons of God were angels who came with the daughters of men, people, and some. And the whole, I think the whole purpose of that, if we really want to get down to it, is Satan thought if he could pollute the human race, there could not be a true human come and save them. So he was trying to stop the coming of the Messiah. That was his plan. So that's what we say. Most Some people would deny all that and just say, well, that's nothing. We don't even know what it was. Others say the best we can tell is possibly it was angels. Who, and, and if you go ahead and read Second Peter and Jude, and it talks about these angels who did not keep their first estate, who did these things, and they're kept in prison for a coming judgment. So if you ask me, that's what I think it is. I know it sounds weird, but that's what I think it is. Jonathan? Well, the, the, uh, the only people that was the only people that came out of the flood were eight people. Right. So, so the actual descendants, in the sense of what we call descendants of these these monster type people, they were gone. But that doesn't mean God didn't have some tall people, some big people later on in history. So, the, and because the only eight people made it through the flood, and that was Noah and his three sons and their three wives and his wife, unless I, I don't think that God let a polluted group get on the ark, you know and. So, yeah. Yeah, that's what I said. Okay, anything else? Or we could go. We, uh, you want to just keep going, Brian? What do you want to do? Could we can keep going. Y'all got any more questions? Yeah, okay, let's go over here. Yeah. Okay, so in the Matthew place where it says, if somebody hits you on the face, turn the other cheek. Well, first of all, the whole, uh, whole idea of somebody hitting you and you're turning the other cheek is sort of a strange thing there to begin with. Uh, it's the idea of trying not to cause problems. The best that I can understand on the Greek word is to mean to hit. It doesn't necessarily mean like knock your face off. It, it means to like come up and slap you because in that day and time, the Roman soldiers, by the way, the Roman soldiers at the time of Christ had all kind of authority. That's why if you remember the passage that says if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If somebody asked you to do what was the next thing? Carry something for a mile. A Roman soldier had the right to come to any non-Roman, which were the Jews, and say carry my gear for a mile. They had the right to do that. And so just a regular old Jewish person had to pick up a Roman soldier's stuff and carry it for a mile. So Jesus said, so if they ask you to carry it a mile, say, you want me to go another mile? Because what you're saying is, we love people. We represent God. And so to get slapped on the face, he's saying don't retaliate there. So I don't know if that helps. Okay, what else? What else? Anybody else? Yes. What about aliens? How about aliens? Okay, <laughs> that, from, other, from, other, from other planets. There's a, you know, there's, there's this whole idea. Okay, so she said, would there, is there such a thing like as aliens who come down from other planets, co-mingle, and maybe they're on the earth? Well, if you look on some of the channels, you can find those stories really well. The best that I can tell from Scripture 
and out of and let, God has not told us of anything other than this world and the people he put on this world and his plan for this world and this universe. Now, some people say, well, what are those, like UFOs and, and things like that? Well, obviously, you know what they are. They're angels. In fact, if you were Satan and you wanted to take the emphasis of Jesus, salvation, true God, and everything else, what would you do? You'd, you'd say, there's some beings out there. And, and so I think that the whole... Anything that's UFOs or things that are weird in the sky and things, I think that's ultimately part of a spiritual battle that kept, keeps people's focus off the real message of Jesus Christ. So I, I don't believe that aliens came to the earth. Now, one day when we, get to, when we get to be with Jesus and he sets up the kingdom on this earth, if he looked at us and said, oh, by the way, I didn't tell you all this, but I got other kingdoms, other places, I, you know, since I'm everywhere at once, I'm dealing with y'all, I'm dealing with them. That'd be okay with me if that's whatever he said. But he didn't put that in Scripture. And so the only thing we got to go by is Scripture. So that's a great question, but I don't see anything like that. Yes? Huh? Okay, Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king priest of the city of Salem, which is Jerusalem. And this was a man that when Abraham came back with his 300 soldiers, 318 soldiers, and they defeated an enemy, and they came back... Abraham met this man, and Abraham gave him a tenth of the victory from the spoil. He's called a king priest. It says over in Hebrews, because what he's trying to emphasize is that Jesus' priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was from what tribe? Judah. The priests were from what tribe? Levi. So Jesus couldn't be a priest on the earth but he's a heavenly priest, and his priesthood is after Melchizedek because this man, who is the king priest of Salem, which we know nothing about him, when it says no father, no mother, he's not saying he didn't have a mother and father. He's saying this whole background in priesthood, we don't know, and, and so it's sort of like Jesus is. That it, it, he, didn't get, he didn't get his priesthood because it was passed down. Jesus didn't get his priesthood because it was passed down. So all Melchizedek was is a strange person, a king priest, who was a believer, who Abraham gave a tenth to uh, because he was a, a believer in the true God and all we can find out is he lived at a person pretty time but his priesthood they call his priesthood Jesus priesthood Psalm 110 says Jesus priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek does that help at all it's he, a lot of people want to say that it was Jesus but in the passage of Hebrews it says one like the son of God and it's a simile there, and he's not saying he is the Son of God, but his priesthood was like the Son of God. So that's why I don't take it as Jesus. Yeah. What else? Yes. Okay, we got just maybe, what, five more minutes? When should we stop? Five more minutes? Yes. Okay, good. So how were they saved, or what were they saved? Okay, we know that before Jesus Christ came that they were saved by coming in, believing in the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. We know that after Jesus came and died and rose again, that we're saved uh, by faith in the one who came and died and rose again. So she's saying, what about people who weren't Jewish? Well, from Adam and Eve, you got to remember, from Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, there was the promise of the Messiah, Savior there, the seed of woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. So from Adam and Eve on, they were all saved by believing in the coming one, the seed of woman, who would be the Savior. By the time you get to Abraham, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness, Genesis 15.6. Also, Genesis 12.1-3. Here is Abraham believing in this coming Messiah that the whole... That 
through him all the world will be blessed. And so they're all so whether you're Jew or Gentile, they were still saved by looking forward to the seed of woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the one who was coming. When it when it got to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on up, it got more specific because he made it clear that this Messiah would actually be a Jewish person through a descendant of David. So everybody, Old Testament, New Testament, always saved the same way by faith alone. In Old Testament, the coming Messiah, Savior, now the one who came. We can't just say, I believe in the one who came. No, we're saying, I believe in Jesus Christ because we got the information. We know exactly who he is. Okay, yes, yeah, Dan. Okay, great questions. First of all, he asked a question is, what qualifies a person for the rapture? In other words, here we are, the church, the body of Christ, and the rapture is going to happen, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15. What qualifies a person for the rapture? By faith in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. You're in the body of Christ. And when Jesus Christ comes in the cloud, the church will be taken off the face of the earth. So there's not a qualification like, okay, I'm a believer. What do I need to do to make sure I get to, you know, get to go? You're automatically going to go because you're part of the body of Christ. There are people who don't take the Bible in what we call historical, literal, grammatical interpretation. And so when they look at the Bible, they say, oh, there's not a kingdom. There won't be, you know, there's no antichrist. There's not any of this stuff. So they don't believe there'll be a rapture or any of that. In fact, all they hold to is one day, it's called an amillennial view, but it's one day Jesus Christ will come back. And that's the end of everything. So they don't have a rapture. They don't have a, uh, an antichrist. They don't have a seven years and all of that. So what's going to happen to those people? If they actually, if they believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, then they're going to be taken out and they'll go, good night, there was a rapture. Right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so I'm glad I was wrong about that. Well, you know, so does that help at all? Okay. Maybe one more? One more question? Yes. That's a great question. Knowledge increased to the end time is coming from Daniel and Revelation, and he's really talking about putting together the end time events. Because what you see in the book of Daniel, when we get to the end of it, he's actually going to tell Daniel to seal it up. And then when he gets to the book of Revelation, he's going to say, open it all up. And if you remember, Daniel and Revelation actually go together. So when he says knowledge is going to increase at the end time, I think that there's a truth about knowledge of how everything fits together, knowledge of the end times. As far as like the Exodus, they came out, that list the cities, and they crossed what was called the Red Sea. And we don't know exactly where that was. In fact, we're not even sure where Mount Sinai was. Because if you remember, they left... They left uh, and and crossed over, and it took them less than, basically it was two months by the time they got to Mount Sinai. But when you go into that part of the region, you can't, nobody knows where Mount Sinai is. There's two or three people that say, we think that was Mount Sinai. There's a guy that did a study, I've got a book in my office, that he, he thinks he found the, you know, the Mount Sinai. Maybe he did, I hope he did, but uh, there's no way to know exactly where they crossed. There, there's no way to know where Mount Sinai exactly was. And by the way, from Mount Sinai to, to Kadesh Barnea, which is where they went to, where they got ready to go into the land, it's only an 11-day journey. That's what it says in the Bible. It's an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. When they got to Kadesh Barnea, they were supposed to go and take the land. That's where they got the 12 spies and went in. Ten came out and said, we can't take it. Two said, yeah. And then they didn't get to go in, and they wandered around for 40 years. So, so they made an 11-day journey, and all they had to do was obey God, and they would have been in the land, and they wouldn't have had the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. So we don't know exactly where they crossed. What we do believe 
is that God, and you may not, you know, if you watch a movie, you may miss some things, but the, the, the Egyptians, Pharaoh's army, is closing in on them, and they had been led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. And when he brought them right to the edge of what's called the Red Sea, he then took that pillar of fire and he went behind them and stopped and stood in between Pharaoh's army and the nation of Israel. And then that night, he told Moses to hold the stick up, and the water parted, and it parted all night long. They went in on dry ground. All three million of them, approximately, went across that Red Sea, and it was a wall of water on both sides. It wasn't a little bit of water when they were just stepping through. They went through this giant thing, got to the other side. When they got to the other side, the Bible says, when the dawn was breaking, it had gone all night long, God then allowed the pillar to move. The Egyptians chased after them and were going in there. And then as the Egyptians were about halfway across, it said God made their wheels on their chariots begin to turn sideways and mess up. And they said, the Lord is fighting for them. Let's get out of here. And then Moses did this and the water covered them and drowned them. So it wasn't a little, you know, some people want to say they just walked across in a little bitty shallow thing. Well, let's say that's true. How are you going to drown the Egyptian army in that, right? You know, either it's true or it's not true. And I believe God parted the water. They went right across. We just don't know exactly where those places were. We may never know. We may never know. But when I think it says that in the end times, things will grow, you know, uh, knowledge will increase, I think it's he's given us more and more of the scripture to put together.